passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, I'll confess I don't really care for questions like, uh, what is your favorite Bible story? Or what is your favorite book of the Bible? Or what is your favorite Bible verse? Um, Honestly, because it's, it's really hard for me to just pick one of those. And yet, if you pressed me, on that question. Now, what is your favorite story in the Bible? Uh, I, I couldn't say that 2 Samuel chapter 9 is my favorite story in the Bible, but it would definitely make my short list. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. And yet, I would say it's almost criminally undertaught. And I think, no, no kidding, no, no joking here, I think that one of the reasons why we neglect this amazing story is because the name Mephibosheth is so hard to pronounce. (laughs) So actually, I think what we should do before we get started is actually practice saying Mephibosheth together so that way you can add this story to your list of of Bible stories that that mean something to you. So it's really a pretty easy easy name, all right? Uh, Mephib. Well done. O-Chef. Mephib O-Chef. See, you guys, you did it. Um, a, a number of years ago when we were back at, at the First Christian Facility, I actually um, led a, a class uh, for our, I think, fifth and sixth, maybe seventh graders at the time. And this was in there. And, um, you know, Grant, you were, I think, and, and Trevor is right there too. Uh, Trevor and, and Grant, I don't know which one of it, you it was, but coined the term Mephibo. Um, for while we were working through this text. And so if Mephibosheth is too hard, um, and neither of them is going to claim that now, um, but if, if Mephibosheth is too hard, uh, feel free to go with Mephibo as well as we're looking at this text. Uh, the One of the reasons why I love this story is because um, it, it shows the amazing, beautiful heart of God in this text. One of the things that we've noticed throughout our time in 2 Samuel is that King David points us to King Jesus. And this is bound up in the title of our sermon series. We're, we're looking at this, a better king. And, and David, as good as he is as the king of Israel, we need a better king. And, and in David's low moments, our hearts are meant to be drawn to that better king. But even in the high moments, when David is a sterling example of faith, we're to look at him and consider, well, how much more is this true of King Jesus? And that's especially true in this text. I think this chapter is the highest point in David's life. It's higher than his battle with Goliath. It's higher than moments of contentment waiting upon God's timing for his promises. It's, it's higher than the moments where he trusts the Lord for deliverance, where it seems like deliverance is impossible. It's even higher than his desire to build a temple for the Lord as a way to bring the Lord glory back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I consider this to be the high point of David's life because here, more than any other time, he shows us the heart of Jesus for you and for me. 
The story of 2 Samuel breaks into three, mo- three movements, and, and we'll follow that this morning as we open this text. So let's go ahead and start with the first one. 2 Samuel chapter 9 opens to this past promise that David made. Decades earlier, back in the book of 1 Samuel, David had made this promise with this man named Jonathan. This is before David was the king. David enters into what is called a covenant with Jonathan. And because this idea of a covenant is so important, I want to take a moment to just define what exactly does the Bible mean when it talks about covenants. It's, a, it's crucial for understanding this entire chapter. So here's the definition we used when we were back in 1 Samuel. A covenant is a relational bond between two parties that contains obligations and is sealed by an oath. So that's what a covenant is. It's basically a shorthand way. It's an unbreakable promise is what it's intended to be. It's this relational bond between two parties that contains obligations and is sealed by an oath. When you enter into a covenant with another person, then you are bound to that person. When you enter into a covenant, you actually commit yourself to living in a certain way. And so when God enters into a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God commits himself to act in a certain way toward David. And David could actually be confident in God's future actions because of what God had promised to him in the covenant. The establishment of the covenant guarantees future action. And now today, the the notion of a covenant is not widely used, but we still use it in weddings. A marriage is a covenant. It's a relational bond that contains obligations and is sealed with an oath. And at its best, marriage works because of a covenant. It's a commitment to act in a certain way. And when I do premarital counseling, I always say a wedding is not a declaration of present love. It is a commitment or a promise or an oath to future love. Because it is a covenant. It is meant to guarantee future action. Of course, as we all know, we live in a broken world. We're all well aware that just because that is what a covenant is supposed to be, that's not always the way that things work. Covenants are not intended to be broken, but sometimes they are nonetheless. And that is the tension of this chapter. As we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9, decades earlier, David enters into a covenant with Jonathan. The question as we open this text is, will David keep his covenant? Jonathan was the oldest son of the former king, King Saul. Jonathan was the heir to the throne. But the first time Jonathan meets David, he gladly abdicates his claim on the throne and he gives it to David because he perceived that David was the king that God had chosen, the the type of king that God's people needed. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're told of the content of this covenant between David and Jonathan. David is actually on the run. He's fleeing from Jonathan's father, Saul, who is trying to kill him. And Jonathan says this while David is running. If I am still alive when you become king... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, 
when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. That phrase, term, steadfast love, is an important one. We'll come back to it here in a moment. This covenant between Jonathan and David contains obligations. For Jonathan, it is a commitment to relinquish his claim on the throne, while for David, it's a commitment not to wipe out Jonathan's family when he becomes king. And you might say, well, that seems like the bare minimum, to to not wipe out his friend's family, but it's actually intentional. In that day and age, when a new king would ascend to the throne, the first act oftentimes was to put to death all the rival claimants to the throne, especially those from the previous regime. And yet not so with David and Jonathan. And the rest of the story of 1 Samuel actually tells us about how things play out. David does not have the opportunity to show covenant love, to keep his promise to Jonathan himself. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, Jonathan dies in battle. And we pick up this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Decades have passed. David is now firmly seated on the throne. We actually saw that last week. David's kingdom is firmly established. And we open with this question. Will David keep his covenant with Jonathan and his family? Verse 1 opens by reminding us that David has not forgotten his covenant. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Decades have passed since they entered into this covenant with one another. Years have passed. We don't know how long specifically. Years have passed since Jonathan has died, but David has not forgotten his covenant. More importantly than that, he hasn't forgotten that his covenant wasn't just with Jonathan, but his covenant was actually with Jonathan and his descendants. David doesn't see Jonathan's death as a convenient out of this covenant, so he doesn't have to keep the promises that he has made. And so he asks those who are in his court. He says, hey, hey, is there anyone left of Saul's house so that I could show kindness to Jonathan? I think it's significant that he doesn't just specifically say kindness to Jonathan, or is there anyone left in Jonathan's house, but he widens that and says, anyone left in Saul's house so that way I can honor this covenant that I have made. He, he, he's gracious here from the very beginning. This word kindness is an important one. It's a very per, a powerful word. It's a, it's a beautiful word. It's the word hesed, which we've talked about before. This idea of hesed is this Hebrew word. We don't actually have a, a good translation for it because there's so much meaning packed into this one word. There's so much weight. There's so much commitment when, the, when we see this idea of hesed. When the Bible uses this word hesed, we see that this word kindness, translated kindness here, means something like this, steadfast, loving kindness and faithfulness. It is a covenantal word. We actually saw it back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, those verses that we read. This idea of steadfast love is the same word. So David, as he's entering into this covenant with Jonathan, Jonathan says, I want you to show steadfast love. I want you to show chesed to me and to my family. And we open this chapter, and the first thing that we see from David is saying, is there anyone left so I can show chesed, so I can show kindness to Jonathan as a part of the covenant that we had made? God himself is the perfect example of what chesed looks like. 
of steadfast love, of faithfulness, of kindness. And so when we see David's words here in verse 1, we should be thinking of something like this. This is just a paraphrase as I'm looking at verse 1. Is there anyone still alive of Jonathan or Saul's house? I want to show that person steadfast, loving kindness and faithfulness so that I can keep the covenant commitments that I made to Jonathan and his family decades ago. So that's David's desire here. But David's court doesn't know of any descendants that are still remaining. And so um, he hears that there is a servant working the the family land of of Saul. His name is Ziba, and so he actually sends for Ziba. Maybe Ziba will know if there is anyone remaining. That's what we pick up in verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? So David sends for Ziba. He asks him, notice here in verse three, David is explicit at the very beginning, from the very moment he opens his mouth, he's not looking to exterminate lives. Here he is he's wanting to show kindness. He's wanting to keep the covenant, the promises that he has made. Remember this idea of a covenant guarantees future action. David is living that out here. Significantly, he calls this kindness, he calls it the kindness of God. We see that David's desire here is at its core a desire to act like God, to mirror the way God acts towards us. Verse four, or pick up again in verse three. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. I think it's significant that the first words that Ziba says about Mephibosheth, and notice we're not actually even given Mephibosheth's name at this point. We're not given Mephibosheth's name until later on in the story. The first words about Mephibosheth are about his crippling injury. The fact that he is unable to walk we saw back in 2 Samuel chapter 4 as we were looking at that passage that Mephibosheth experienced this horrific, tragic accident that the day his father and grandfather died. He was unable to walk for the rest of his life because his caretaker dropped him while running for their lives. And the picture that is painted here of Mephibosheth is a sad one. Here's a man who has been crippled for the majority of his life. He was five when he was crippled, and by this time he has a son. What's more, we're told that he is living in a place called Lo Debar, which literally just means no word in Hebrew. We might use a different way of describing a similar expression. Rather than no word, we would say nowhere or no name. And while we haven't been told his name yet, Mephibosheth itself, but when you translate it, it it paints a very sad picture of what this man is like. Mephibosheth means something like from the mouth of shame. Mephibosheth's fall from grace is astounding. He's born into royalty, and he spends a few years of his life in the royal palace. He's He's in the line for the throne, but in a single day, everything is taken from him. He loses his grandfather, the king, He loses his father, the crown prince. 
and he suffers a tragic accident while fleeing for his life from the Philistines. And he now ends up in the middle of nowhere, in a no-name village, far from the places of power on the outskirts of Israel. And his life is filled with shame. We see that this boy, who once had the world in the palm of his hands, is now an outcast. Now, 2 Samuel doesn't tell us all of that just so we would feel sorry for Mephibosheth. All these details are given to us to to describe the amazing gap between King David and Mephibosheth in this moment. It's meant to stress the kindness that David shows, so unthinkable in that day and age, the, the kindness that David shows to Mephibosheth. And that's actually the focus of these first few verses here, that David acts with kindness in keeping his promises. David acts with kindness in keeping his promises to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's pitiful state here in this moment, it does not dissuade David from keeping this commitment that he has made. He's not going to get anything out of this commitment to Mephibosheth, but he has made a promise. He's made a promise to Jonathan. He has obligations to fulfill in light of the covenant that he has made, and he will act with kindness in light of those promises. And it's those promises and that commitment to keeping those promises that leads David to to send for Mephibosheth, and that's the second movement of this story starting in verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, behold, I am your servant. I don't know about you, but I I wonder what Mephibosheth has going through his mind in this moment. Culturally, you know, this is the moment where the current king would kill the rival claim to the throne. And so he comes and falls down before David. He shows honor to David, not only as the king, but also as this man who holds his life in his hands. And we see David's response to Mephibosheth. It's not one of judgment, but it's one of incredible wonder. Verse 7 is the heart of this chapter. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Three parts of this promise that David gives to Mephibosheth. The first is, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Here we see David calm Mephibosheth's fears about his future, about his family's future. He says, there's no need to fear. Do not fear. There's no need to fear because kindness reigns, not retribution in this moment. David is the type of man who keeps covenant obligations, that he, he knows how you can be assured of how David is going to act because of the obligations that he has made in the past. And that that kindness is not just for Jonathan, it's also for Jonathan's descendants. So this is the first part of David's kindness here. David spares his rival's life because of a promise he has already made. Again, that's what a covenant looks like, a guarantee of future action because of something that has already been 
made a commitment that's already been made in the past. Second part of David's promise goes beyond just sparing Mephibosheth's life. He says, and I will restore to you all the lands of, your, of Saul, your father. The fact that Mephibosheth is living in no name Lodibar here, and he's not in Gibeah where Saul was from, indicates that he has lost his family inheritance. He's lost the land that was promised to his family. It appears that the land Ziba is working actually was owned by David at this point. It became a part of the the king's inheritance, the transfer of kingship from Saul to David. And I don't think we can stress enough the importance of one's family inheritance of land for the people of Israel. Land in the Old Testament was not just a source of income and provision. Now, that's certainly true, but it was more than that. There's something uniquely special about the land for each individual family, their individual portion of land. This is ultimately what the book of Ruth is about. If you've read the book of Ruth, it's about how God uses a man named Boaz in order to give land back to the family of Naomi this land that had been promised to him. If you go into the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and you look at Naboth's vineyard and the story of Ahab stealing Naboth's vineyard 150 or so years after the time of David. What we see there, it, we, we read that story and we're like, Naboth, why don't you just give the wicked king, he's gonna give you a lot of money for your vineyard, why don't you do that? It's because he understands that the land meant something specific, not just for Israel as a whole, but for individuals. That God's promise of land is not just for his people generally, but the specific land that God has given to your family is a specific promise to you. So come back to Mephibosheth here in this moment. To lose your land you lose your family's land, it is actually to be cut off from God's promises to you. And it's in that context that David offers this land back to Mephibosheth. That's why it's so significant here. It's not just a promise of provision, of future income, but it's, it's more than that. It's the restoration of, of what God had promised to the family of Mephibosheth. This is an unthinkable grace to Mephibosheth. He's been cut off from the promises of God for his family, and yet now he is receiving them back. This is the second kindness of David. He he returns Mephibosheth's family lost inheritance. The third part of David's promise is probably the most astounding of all. He says, and you shall eat at my table always. Remember, at this moment, Mephibosheth is an orphan. He was born into the royal family, and yet he lost it all. At this point, he's living in disgrace. And yet, in David's grace in this moment, David proclaims that Mephibosheth will have a seat at his table always. This is what kindness looks like. This is what chesed looks like. In the Old Testament, there wasn't an official category for adoption. But that's functionally what is taking place here. 
This man has no family, and yet now he is given the status of David's sons. He's seated at the royal table. In fact, we'll read a few verses later that this is made explicit, that he's seated as one of David's sons or with David's sons at David's royal table. This is the third part of David's abundant kindness. He welcomes Mephibosheth into his family. You see, David's abundant kindness doesn't just spare Mephibosheth's life. He returns this lost inheritance. He welcomes him into his family. No wonder Mephibosheth in this moment, who comes into this meeting, he's, he's fearing the worst coming into this meeting, and he responds the way he does in verse 8, only way that I would know how. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth's wonder and marvel at David's kindness echoes David's own wonder and marvel from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, when God made these incredible promises to David, the amazing kindness of God to David, and he says, who am I? And that's the message of these verses, this incredible kindness. What, is, what does this kindness look like from David here? Well, he keeps his covenant with Jonathan by welcoming his destitute rival into his family. That's the second section here. David welcomes his destitute rival into his family. As we saw in the first section of this chapter, Mephibosheth is in a sorry state. Culturally, he was David's rival. Culturally, he was an outcast. The king would not in a million years want this type of person in his presence, and yet none of that matters to David. David is committed to this covenant that he has made with Jonathan, and he's going to keep it. And that covenant guarantees his future action toward Mephibosheth and his family, and he welcomes his destitute rival into his family. And it's that guarantee of future action that's really the focus of the last part of this chapter. The, the rest of this chapter is basically a conclusion. It's a conclusion to the story. It's essentially saying David made this, David wanted to keep this promise. That's part one. David said he's going to keep this promise, part two. Part three, David kept the promise. It's his commitment to his promise. Verses nine through 11 tell us of David orchestrating things in order to accomplish exactly what he has promised. Verse nine, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belongs to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands the servant, so will your servant do. Ziba wasn't in the room for these incredible promises of verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, so he's brought back into the room, told exactly, he's told to do exactly what David has commanded or promised to uh, Mephibosheth. And the rest of, of uh, verse 11 through the end of the chapter basically says, and so that's what happened. David kept his promise. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I love that phrase, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house made Mephibosheth's, or became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. 
Notice that David extends this welcome not just to Mephibosheth, but to his family as well. The text mentions his son Micah as a way that David's commitment continues past Mephibosheth's generation. That's the focus of verse 13. This isn't a temporary commitment from David. It's not like you get two months. Always he is seated at the table. He will always eat at the king's table. And this actually continues. If we look at the book of 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 9, we're told that at least until the time of the exile, Jonathan has a son, a descendant that is a part of, of David's table. And these concluding verses to the chapter make it clear that David, he, he understands, he gets what, an, what this idea of a covenant is. He's obligated to act in a certain way because of what he has committed to do in the past. And he does exactly that. What's more, that, co- that commitment isn't temporary. That's the heart of verses 9 through 13. David's promises are not temporary, but unending. They're not going to disappear. Mephibosheth doesn't have to worry that there's going to be a time in the future where David will say, never mind, or time's up. He will keep his commitment. Mephibosheth will always eat at the table as a part of David's family. You know, when we began this morning, I said that this is the highest point, uh, I think the highest point of David's life because here he most clearly displays the heart of Jesus for you and me. Just consider the three truths concerning David that we learn from this text. They're beautiful displays of kindness, of this hesed, and yet they're pale shadows of what is, is an even greater reality that is found in Jesus and in the gospel. Consider the first four verses. First four verses, we saw that David acts in kindness or with kindness in keeping his promises. How much more is that true of Jesus who acts with kindness in keeping his promises at the cross? Consider Paul's words describing the events of the cross in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The cross was an astonishing display of kindness and mercy from God. It was the culmination of God's promises found throughout the Old Testament. The cross is rooted in the mercy of God. God gives new life to those who are dead, uniting them with Jesus forever. And all of this is so that our lives might be a testament of the riches of his grace and kindness forever. David extends unfathomable kindness to Mephibosheth because he's committed to keeping his promise to Jonathan. And Jesus extends this unfathomable kindness to us because he is committed to keeping his promises to us at the cross. Second part of this chapter, we saw that David welcomes his destitute rival into his family. How much more is that true of Jesus? In the gospel, we see that Jesus doesn't just welcome destitute rivals. He welcomes destitute enemies into his family. If Mephibosheth is a a pitiful creature before David intervenes, how much more is that true of you and me? Ephesians chapter 2 describes our state before the cross, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice all the words Paul uses to describe us before Jesus intervenes. Dead, enslaved to the way of this world, those whom the evil one holds in his power, sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that we're not just neutral toward God, but we're actually hostile toward him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. We're his enemies, like he says in, in Romans chapter 5. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What did his death accomplish? Well, Jesus took enemies and he seats seats them at his table as his family. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. King David's grace and kindness here is astounding. He takes this destitute rival and welcomes him into his family. How much greater is the kindness of King Jesus, who takes enemies and makes them his fellow heirs, his brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. He makes us family. Finally, we saw that David's promises were not temporary, but were unending. Mephibosheth was seated at David's table forever. And how much greater is our confidence that the promises of the Lord Jesus are not temporary, but they are unending. Nothing could ever possibly come in between the love of God and those who have placed their faith in Jesus. That's what Paul writes a few verses later in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Jesus, then the promises of God are unending. He will never renege on his promises to you. As Charles Spurgeon once said, I am sure he would not love me so long and then leave off loving me. If he intended to be tired of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not given his whole heart to me, I'm sure he would have turned from me long ago. Jesus' promise and his love, not temporary, but unending. What unfathomable kindness is on display that we are the objects of his love. The story of David and Mephibosheth is a shining example of the love of God for those who are far from him. It's It's a picture of the gospel that the king welcomes the outcast into his family. 
And that's the heart of this text. Hope you caught it as we were walking our way through. In his unending kindness, Jesus welcomes his enemies into his family. As you consider this text, did you see yourself as Mephibosheth? A child of shame? A part of the race that once had glory in the garden, but was exiled and living in the land of no name in the middle of nowhere? Crippled, unable to do anything to merit our way back into God's good graces, at best just hoping to live a low profile on the fringes so that we might pass the notice of the true king. That we were enemies of that true king. The words of the true king are better than our wildest hopes and dreams. You, my enemy, will sit at my table forever. This is kindness. Enemies are now not just friend, but family. In his unending kindness, Jesus welcomes his enemies into his family. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the message of this passage, the, the beautiful story of how it points us to Jesus and how Jesus, you are committed to us. Thank you, Lord. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.